Um, I want to welcome you to the uh, Black Voices Candidates Forum. Um, my name is Nicole Watson, and I am one of the organizers for uh, your event this afternoon. Um, a little bit about me and a little bit about Black Voices. Um, I'm a fourth grade teacher at Rosa Parks Elementary. Um, woo woo to Rosa Parks. Um, and shout out to um, one of my colleagues here, Ms. Uh, Mrs. Nicole Holden, who is fifth grade teacher at Rose Parks. Wave your hand. I don't like to start with I'm just a teacher, right? Because teachers are incredible and we're amazing. Um, and all of the amazing things that I think we get to do in this life, we get to do because we had amazing instructors and amazing teachers. And as I have been taught, it is always important um, in the black community to begin by thanking our elders. And today we have two of our elders with us, and this one of these is not really an elder elder, but she's moving into eldership. And what that means is not by age, but by the resource, and by the calling, and by the pushing, and the, the shoulders that she allows us to stand on. And that is none other than uh, Lakeitha Elliott. Can we give her a round of applause? She does incredible work in our community, and she always pulls my coattails. I always look to her to see if her eyebrows raised. Um, if it's not, then I'm good. If it is, then I need to temper down a bit, because um, that can get pretty revolutionary. Um, and as we know that this work is, is a marathon, shout out to Nipsey Hussle, rest in peace. This work is a, is a marathon, meaning it's not a race, so that means the endurance um, of our elders is something that I think we look to. And I don't know if we're doing that in every community, but in ours, our eldership is really important. And she likes to call our, elder, our elders SIBAs. Uh, and one of the other SIBAs that we have in the room is a retired educator who I call Mama Renee, but her name is Renee Anderson. Can you please wave and let's give her a hand? She might have been a teacher. <laughs> um, and we start with that because um, it's important to understand the shoulders on whom we stand. And as a phenomenal educator, I can say that because I've been doing it for five years now. I'm still a baby in the classroom. But I stand on the shoulders of other phenomenal educators who've been doing it long before me. And I hope to be able to use my shoulders to help prop up the next generation of educators long after I'm gone. Black Voices started um, as a parent collective, really. Um, I was teaching black parent initiative classes um, through BPI. And we, I kind of was a little nervous because I don't have children of my own yet. And when the then CEO at that time, Charles McGee, um, asked me to teach those classes, I kind of thought, what am I going to teach parents who've had children who are, have either lost those, those children through the system or who are um, curious and interested in how to really re-engage on the campuses that serve their children? How am I going to teach a class to them? And those classes began as just a, a community space. And one of the ways in which I facilitated those courses was to really offer what I, as a teacher, had always hoped parents knew. And then it became this place where those parents began to deliver the information to me around the things that they wished their teachers had always known. And by that, we just built a bridge. And the relationship building, especially in the black community, is huge because we rely a lot on relationships and authenticity. And a lot of what you see today is a, is a product of what we built together through the BPI courses. Many of those parents are still rocking with me. They checked you in today. 
Um, that would be Tasha Coleman in the back, Yvette Davis, Allie who's sitting up in the front. She don't look like she's doing much, but she's surveying the land and she is. And, and what this effort, in, I think, encouraged us to know or inspired us to realize is that every single parent is significant. And if you talk to most teachers, one of the biggest things or one of the biggest concerns we have is parent engagement. How do we get parents in the classroom? How do we get them on the campuses that serve their children? Oftentimes, we end up doing it by back to school night, which is raggedy. Because it's on your campus, it's in the letterhead that you used last year, and it's a low lift for us as teachers. And what these classes required me to understand was parents want to engage, but they want to engage where they want to engage. And so it required me to go where they were. And that was what the BPI classes offered. At that time, Jumila Singleton Munson and Rita Moore were running for Zone 4 uh, uh, school board. And one of those candidates came to me and was like, we want your endorsement. I was like, one, what is that? And two, how do I do it? And what we realized as a, as a parent class was that we didn't really know much about the school board. We didn't know the members that currently sat on the school board. And when I did a little bit of research, I realized only 17% of the city of Portland had voted in that election or the election before. And I thought, wow. But yet these folks, these seven folks, hold an enormous amount of power. And so I asked the candidate, I said, where can I come and learn more information about you? Where can I ask questions to be able to figure out, can you represent me? And there was nothing. There are tons of candidates' forms for county commissioners and city commissioners and gubernatorial elections, but there weren't many for candidates that sit or run for school boards. And I thought, well, we need to host one. And so we did. And at that time, I remember previous board member Steve Buell coming was like, where's the zone for me? And I was like, I didn't even know you sat on a zone because we were still learning. And so what you see today is a product of that knowledge, that knowledge production and how we've grown, grown forward. It's not perfect. It is not by all means gonna dot every I and cross every T, but what this space is designed to do is be a space that's safe for black folks and black community members and black students and families to be able to come and ask the questions that they might be afraid to ask somewhere else. This is a space that's unapologetically black and what that means is it's black culture, black music, black folks, black heritage and black excellence. And all that means is just needing to have a space that's our own. Doesn't mean that other folks aren't welcome, but it does mean that when I go to other forums, they're scary. If you haven't been engaged in those conversations, then you don't know what the, what the, the context is. And it's hard to get involved in them. When you ask, you feel silly. And politics, we shouldn't feel silly. Because if I elect you to sit on a specific seat, I elect you to represent me when I'm not in the room. And in order for you to really be able to do that, you gotta know me. And I have to be able to be able to reach you and be able to know who you are, and that's what these are designed to do. If you wanna sit at the planning table and you wanna come and you and your organization or you wanna help lift, you are more than welcome, there's room, because we can make the table as large as we need to make it. As long as we realize that there are communities that are not in the room, and that things are being done to people and not along with or alongside. And we in this room can change that. So I wanted to just start with that and let you understand a little historical context about who I am and why we're here and what this event is really supposed to represent. It's supposed to feel like family. It's supposed to feel like love. If you see someone sitting by themselves, don't do that. We in a black church, we don't do that. You see somebody sitting, you let them sit by you. If you see somebody struggling, you pull them along. That's black church etiquette and we're gonna honor that today. So speaking of black church etiquette, now I'm letting y'all eat in this sanctuary, but do not tell Dr. Bethel that I allowed y'all to eat. 
I'm gonna get a whooping. Do not let him know that I let you eat. If you spill a crumb, pick it up, please. Uncle Bruce is running around. He is the facilities manager here. We call him Uncle Bruce. He's your uncle now, too. And he's gonna vacuum and clean when you leave so that we can have church here tomorrow morning. So just treat this like your granny house. You would not dare put your feet on your granny coffee table. And if you would, it's not your granny house then. It's my granny's house. And I would never put my foot on my grandma's table. So if you are eating, that's fine. Eat your food, drink your drinks. But just treat it like Nana's house. And we're gonna leave it better than we found it. The restrooms, in case you haven't found, are in the back of the atrium. The ladies' restroom is over to the left. The uh, fellas' facility is over to the right. We do not have gender-neutral spaces here. This is a black church. We don't act accordingly. I would hope that you would uh, silence your cell phones. Doesn't mean that you can't tweet. Our hashtag is Black Voices PDX. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. If that's the way you're gonna submit a question, that's fine, we'll be able to see it. But at least that way, as we're recording, we've got Emmanuel here with Socks and Sandals, which is a podcast um, that we want to be able to, he needs to be able to hear he's recording the entire event. Two minutes to have an opening statement, 
And with this, we're not going to continue. We don't want somebody to have to go first every time. We don't want anybody to go last every time. So we will switch that up. And so we're going to start off first with zone three. Uh, we're going to give you an opening statement. Stay amazed. Um, is not better, it's worse than it was. 
Um, and one of the reasons I'm running is because I think we owe the entire district, we owe the entire community um, um, the same opportunity that I had and the same opportunity that my kids are currently getting. And that's one of the things that I'd really like to push for moving forward. Um, real quickly, because I think I'm probably almost at my two minutes, um, I also think we're at an opportunity here with our bond program um, in terms of modernizing all the schools. Again, we, we didn't do a whole lot for 20 or 30 uh, years. Uh, we need to go back and make those investments. And finally, when we get some, and I hope we get some questions about this today, if we get some new revenue from Salem, I think we need to really talk about how we spend that and how we spend that to further equity within the district as well. So thanks again for having the forum. I look forward to, to talking more. All right, all right. From zone two, Ms. Michelle Capaz. Okay, so hello everybody. Um, thank you to Black Voices United for having me, and thank you to Zebra responsible for the heat for not having it too hot in here. I appreciate that. Um, I'm Michelle DePass. I'm running for school, uh, Portland Public School Board. I'm running from Zone 2, although this is a citywide election. Ballots go out on May 1st, and the election is Tuesday, May 21st. There will be three candidates on the ballot, although uh, one of the three has dropped out, leaving just the two of us here. Uh, who are competing for the Zone 2 seat. Um, I need 47,622 uh, votes to win. I think there are three things you should look for in a school board member, and I bring all three of those qualities to the table. First, you should love someone who's demonstrated commitment to children and this community. Second, you should elect someone with experience and passion for doing the school board work. That includes vision and leadership, setting policy, financial accountability, and closing the achievement gap by helping to prepare all kids for college, career, and life. And lastly, you should elect someone with a proven record of accomplishments in Portland who has lived experience in the district and who is ready to dive deep into the discussion around racial equity. I asked myself, how would one go about closing the enormous and historic achievement gap between black kids and white kids? There are proven policy and program strategies that we know that work, and here are my top three. We need to uh, be serious about um, a more culturally diverse and racially representative district human capital. That's across the board. Um, leadership, um, board members, admin, teachers. Recent studies show that kids exposed to diverse learning environments are better suited to the global challenges we face in the 21st century. The other thing I want to stress is that I um, come from a family of PPS teachers. My grandmother and mother retired from King Elementary. I also went to school here, and I see my niece in the background. She's the fourth generation of teachers here. Uh, thank you for showing up, Charter, and I think I'm done. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> Good zone seven, candidate Schultz. All right, I'm trying to stand it up there because uh, sitting down like this is not the best for me. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Schultz. I'm a father of three. Uh, two of them are at Franklin. Uh, I think that the, uh, the student council is in an incredibly pivotal position that's underutilized. I think that it could address some of these inequity issues by having a person that can help navigate the system that's overly complex and doesn't cater to uh, a variety of students. One of my sons is a survivor of leukemia. You know, that's a phenomenal feat, but then we had to deal with PPS and his needs with a 504 plan, an IEP plan, special ed services. And those challenges shouldn't be there. And I think a lot of people fall into those challenged areas and it really, it, 
It could be better supported with better leadership and better respect for these different communities that are struggling. When you hear about classroom clears, that's alarming and how they're applied to which students they're applied to, it's very alarming. And I have not heard anybody really say, this is how we're gonna fix it. And I've not heard people saying, and we need to be fixing it. I've heard that about racial inequity, but there's other spin-offs with racial inequity that are tied into the same issue of how they're uh, enforcing rules. And so if we're not talking about all of the things impacting the problem, we're not gonna be able to fix the problem. Oh, that's digestible, sorry, a little, little wandery. But for me, as a father, as a father of students in the system, I see the system not working well. I'm afraid of what the product of the system is going to be in my sons. Are they gonna go on to college? Are they gonna be well-educated with their, their high school diploma to, uh, oh man, I'm bad with time to enter the workplace and be, and be thriving in our communities, right? We want our kids to graduate and go out and work and be productive. And I don't feel strongly enough that the system is providing that now, and I feel like the only way to, to do anything is to step up and get in there. I wish there was someone else, like Zone 2 has great folks. I wish, I could, I wish they were running for mine. I wouldn't even have bothered. So that's why I'm running, is I don't see better people out there. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Last but not least, we're going to the Shanice Clark. Thank you. Uh, thanks to y'all for being here. I know it takes a village to create spaces like this, so uh, I appreciate this format for sure. Uh, I'm an educator, community organizer, and advocate for students, and uh, Portland is my home, and I deeply care about those students and their families. Uh, I'm with students every day, uh, working at a Black Cultural Center, and. I also have the opportunity to partner uh, with different organizations and schools and uh, CPPS students. And that has called uh, me to join this election. And I know uh, through my educational uh, training and educational leadership, uh, I've identified that students and community members are also the experts in determining uh, the indicators for student learning and success and I don't see uh, transparent and fluid processes um, that include folks um, in the heavy and important stakes uh, that school board members are in, involved and oversee. Uh, so uh, I also uh, come from a working Jamaican family and a first generation, and I uh, have an experience with trauma that disrupted my high school experience. And I know that folks in Portland also identify with this, and. 76% of our students who don't complete high school come from low-income families, and uh, that is a key reason why I'm running to try and center wraparound supports, restorative discipline practices, and stronger retention efforts to keep teachers and staff in schools. Um, I know uh, when restorative justice efforts were in practice that 50% of suspensions, for example, uh, went down, uh, so I'm definitely invested in uh, restoring some of that work that has happened and has worked. Uh, and also, I have experience uh, doing and creating educational policy uh, that impacts the livelihood of students, and that's a key part of this work and this role. Um, I am committed to investing in things that will help further learning and motivate students. Uh, navigator programs, arts programs, and technical education. 
Uh, I definitely know, okay, um, just really quickly to wrap it up, I know uh, we need leadership that's accountable to frontline communities and uh, being on the front lines is an important part of a lens to bring to the board and I also uh, want to center student voice and that is needed uh, at the Portland Public School Board. Thank you to every one of you guys so much for your opening statements. We did a good job. We did a good job trying to keep it at two minutes. Uh, we got, we kind of got, we did it, we did all right. We did all right. But as we continue, we have to very, be very conscious of that. And so I do not want to have to interrupt anyone, but if we can get through this or flow through, it'd be amazing. So the next step, we're about to go to our question and answer piece. Uh, question and answer, we have uh, specific questions uh, that we're gonna ask you guys, as well as questions that we've got from the community. So we're going to try to be very, very mindful of the time. Um, if you have a question, there's your best five card coming up and down the aisle. You said what? If you have a question, um, I've got some students who I'm not paying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's critical. They're going to be walking up and down the aisles with three by five cards and a pen. They need the three by five card back when you're done and the pen so that we can make sure we pass it to other folks. We may not get to all the questions, but we will uh, type those up at the end and we can send them to the candidates post-event and we'll post them in our uh, Facebook page um, so that you can see their answers. All right, all right. And so we are going to get into these questions. Um, you guys are prepared. Uh, these are very important questions for our community and specifically on dealing with students of color, specifically African-American students. And so as I said before, we are going to switch it up so somebody doesn't have to go first every time. Somebody won't go last every time. Everybody will have an opportunity to go first. Everybody have opportunity to go to last. And so, starting off, we're gonna start off with you, Mr. Scott. Question is, how have you been involved with PPS in the last three years? Great, um, thank you, the two minutes, correct, all right. Um, so, um, I've, I've been involved in a few different ways, and, and, and primarily it's been through my, 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 my uh, kids' school. So my kids go to, um, go to the Odyssey program. That's one of PPS's focus option schools. It's, history-based program, um, K through eight. Um, and I got, um, I've been involved uh, just through the PTA, right, as my kids uh, uh, first, first went and as a volunteer and, and, and doing some work with the school and, and helping out. Um, and then a few years ago, um, when the district started looking at some boundary decisions, uh, I got a little bit more involved because um, they were looking at potentially moving our school, uh, and they did move our school. Um, and also they began to look at some of the criteria in terms of, of how, um, uh, how decisions are made in terms of how you get into focus option programs. So if, if people don't know, um, focus option programs are citywide uh, and you put your name in and it is supposed to be a relatively random lottery. Um, however, there's a real problem with the focus option programs and that problem is their lack of diversity. And that lack of diversity comes from a number of, 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 uh, of causes um, Part of that's transportation, part of it's after school care, part of it's the location of the program itself. And so um, as we went through that process and we started talking internally and I formed a, an equity committee within the Odyssey program, um, specifically looking at how do we diversify our program and how do we, uh, for the families of color that are in the program, how do we make sure they feel welcome? Um, and we made some small changes. Um, some of the little things like we were um, charging for things that we didn't need to charge for. Um, we weren't uh, necessarily having a very, um, um, uh, the curriculum needed some work in terms of how we talked about different issues. Um, and, and then there are bigger issues like the transportation after school care that we started talking to the district about. And to be honest, the answer from the district was, well, we don't really have any resources. We don't really know how to solve that problem for you. 
Um, that's not a really, that's not a good answer. And that's not an okay answer. Um, and so I'd like to think we made a little bit of progress in that, um, but there's a lot more that needs to be made. Uh, and, and that's been most of my involvement uh, with through that. Thank you very much, thank you very much. We do not want the alarm to go off, y'all. No, no you did, <laughs> that's good, that's a good indicator. We don't want to hear that. <laughs> but you did good, you did a great job. Uh, next, Ms. Clark. Yes. Uh, so, um, like I mentioned briefly before, I oversee a Black Cultural Center that's at Portland State University, and I spend most of my time uh, with students in that space. But we do a lot of student engagement programming, and uh, for example, there was a documentary we had uh, screened Black Girl in Suburbia, and we invited uh, folks from around the county uh, to participate. So we saw students, families, and educators uh, talking about some of the hostile environments that they navigate and uh, really similar programming. So I know Measure 98 are resources that we've used to bring more folks on campus. And uh, we had folks, uh, and this is really uh, from county to county. So we see folks from in Multnomah County, Washington County, and talk about uh, issues that the, the event was called Young Activists. And we talked about the resiliency that they already exhibit in ways that they can encourage uh, co-creating learning uh, in the classroom. Uh, so those are the, the most of my experiences and uh, through uh, engaging with Opal Environmental Justice, which uh, I currently sit on a board for, but uh, do work with transit dependent folks in this community. Uh, so they have a group of youth of color uh, who are advocating for youth pass and, and trying to make sure there's equity and accessing uh, the schools that they really want to go to in, in ways that make sense for their families. Uh, going to board meetings, uh, trying to go as much as I can in this campaign, uh, and also uh, I have participated and shown support uh, for a literary arts program that called Writers in the Schools, and uh, folks create comic books and poetry and cool work and do showcases. Uh, so uh, supporting uh, the readings, they're having one in May. Uh, I really enjoy going to those. And uh, um, fun, fun things like that, and <laughs> engaging in hard conversations uh, with uh, students around the county through my world, my role at PSU. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Pass. Okay, so um, I spend a lot of time in the counseling office at Benson High School. I have an 18-year-old, my youngest. It's his birthday today. Uh, hi, Martin Cheek, Martincito. I'm uh, praying that he graduates in June. Um, uh, King PTA, it goes back a little further than three years. It's about uh, five years probably. Pretty involved at, PT, uh, at King as well. Um, at one time they had a former cop, former prison warden come into the school, um, replace the teacher mid-year that was, uh, was very disappointed uh, with their choice of hires. I just taught a class recently at Madison High School on housing policy. I worked for the Housing Bureau in community engagement and I taught uh, did a presentation to the economics and uh, geography classes called Housing 101, Race and Place, to talk about how um, housing policy is based on, on, on racist policy. And then just yesterday, I participated with the Portland Opportunities Industrialization Center and Rosemary Anderson High School and Camas High School in a joint production of uh, uh, a production called Seven Last Words. And it was about the seven last words spoken by the black men that have been killed by police um, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Um, I can't breathe isn't seven words, but 
It was a sung uh, choral uh, performance, very emotional, and it was an amazing way to see art uh, work with this deep, uh, with racism. How, do, how are we gonna address racism between privileged um, white students from Camas that are presenting the production and black children that are in alternative um, education here in Portland? It was very moving. Thank you very much. Side note, I was supposed to host that yesterday, but my son got sick. Yeah, it was good though. Yeah, I went and spoke to the kids at Camas. There, it's amazing. You guys haven't saw it. It started with the uh, University of Michigan Men's Choir, and they brought us. It's amazing. Look it up. Guys, who are you, Miss May? Thank you. I came to um, Portland about ten years ago. Um, I have two sons who live here, um, so um, I had retired and I wanted to find something to do. So I um, started working with a group called Oasis, which is um, older folks who go into the school and develop relationships with um, kids and um, teach them to read. Um, it's a little different than the SMART program because it's a one-on-one it's -on -one thing. And so I um, was a tutor coordinator for um, uh, several schools in North Portland. So I got to visit the different schools and know some of the principals and um, work with some of the kids and the tutors together. So that was my first experience with Portland Public Schools. Um, and then um, later on, I became, uh, I became involved with uh, uh, Portland Parent Union. And I am on the board of Portland Parent Union, and we started out doing a Know Your Rights clinic uh, with uh, parents who were having issues with uh, um, not knowing their rights as far as their children were concerned. So we tried to educate uh, parents about that. Um, I also was part of uh, redoing the student handbook um, a few years ago. Um, and more recently, I testified several times in front of the school board about uh, Wi-Fi radiation in schools and trying to raise that subject as maybe being a cause of the disruptive behavior that we're seeing in schools that isn't normal. So um, that's been my experience with Portland's public school so far. Thank you. What a faux pas, unmasked, unabashed, unashamed. Hear the voice set of unacclaimed. Yeah, hear the voice set of unacclaimed. I have three kids, so how am I involved in Portland Public School? I'm advocating for my children every week, every day, every month. I'm doing homework with them when they have it. Portland Public Schools doesn't do a lot of homework for a variety of reasons. It's frustrating at sometimes, it's great at others. Sometimes they do, and that's what I help them with. I'm going to the a school board to fight against uh, programs that I think are foolish and, and poorly thought out. Uh, I don't know if you all are familiar with Native Generations Project, but uh, they built low-income housing for Native American youth and then populated with uh, African-American families that were, uh, that they're like uh, the lowest of the rental scores, so it gave them a place to live, but then they offered them zero programming. It's an absolute travesty, because you take a vulnerable population, stick them in one spot, and give them nothing. And so chaos ensued until services finally came on board and I was advocating against the program from the start because it was clear they didn't have a path to help people that were coming into that system and I think that happens all over Portland. You have people that are white that come into minority populations say this is what's best for you and you don't have them 
listening to those communities. I was asked early in this process, uh, how would you deal with some of these inequity issues? I said, stop asking white people. Because frankly, <laughs> frankly, that's not where the answers come from. If I'm a white guy on the board, my first job on this issue is to find authorities in the community to speak to these issues. There's consultants, a bountiful consultants from the black community that can speak to how we deal with these issues, but no one's listening to that. Yes. So for me, that's where I come from. I can bring a sense of, I'm a working guy. I got three kids, I'm a full-time single dad. That's what I do. I go to Scouts on Tuesdays, I go to Cup Scouts on Mondays, I go to Ultimate Frisbee now, my son's just started and they have a game. So I'm in my neighborhood association, I'm at East Portland Action Plan, I'm a neighborhood emergency team guy. So I'm doing all these things and the goal is to be invested in my community and as I continue to invest, I see constantly that, that there's a bunch of people missing from these conversations. All right. Don't try to get invited to the cookout, right? I'll see you. <laughs> All right, question number two. I'm gonna start with you, Ms. Clark. And so this is gonna be a, a three-part question, and so you can pick which part uh, you wanna answer. And so according to the 2019 Oregon Department of Education and Portland Public Schools audit, roughly 80 to 90% of PPS African-American students did not meet grade level standards on the state's 2017-2018 achievement test. And so you can answer this in one of these three parts. A, how do you feel about, what do you feel about standardized testing? B, do you believe that achievement tests are the best measure of student aptitude? Or C, what other measures should PPS consider? Thank you for that question. Uh, yes, uh, the audit definitely told us things that we already know as a community, the places of growth that we need to have uh, within PPS and uh, maybe I'll, I'll try to address uh, each of those points. I definitely think that testing has a purpose, but it shouldn't be seen as the only thing or, or the only tool that we use to assess student learning. And I definitely know that some of these tests are culturally insensitive and aren't uh, doing the work of telling us how students are actually able to succeed in the classroom. Uh, so I think things like uh, anthologies, portfolios, writing assignments, we can do climate studies and different types of assessment uh, to address uh, thinking about um, the differences in performance uh, for black folks and for other uh, kids of color um, when we look at performance and ways to address it. Um, but I definitely would advocate for um, using testing in ways that don't take away from the curricular goals that we need to meet each year for students and um, absolutely thinking about other alternatives to look at data and to get data and being in community with teachers and folks who are on the front lines uh, to determine um, what actual uh, assessment methods work, what assessment methods are accurate, and how they uh, are showing up in the classroom. Thank you very much, thank you. Uh, Mr. Bassan, question? Um, you wanna hear the parts again? Uh, no, I, okay. I, I wrote down, because I'm always so bad. So um, I went to um, Metropolitan Learning Center where there were no grades. Um, it was a K through 18 program. And I don't remember ever taking a test. 
at that school, and that's okay. I'm not a big fan of standardized testing. I think standardized tests tell us uh, the race and income of the children in the class, how well the school may or may not be doing, and, and all kinds of things that, that don't really benefit the children. Um, I think that uh, we can measure in different ways. Um, I have experience actually doing alternative measures uh, in the energy industry and in other places uh, professionally, but um, there's a portfolio. I like what you said about the portfolios. At MLC, we, um, as high schoolers, turned in a, um, a, a diary every Friday that had pictures in it, it had news articles that we were to read, it had some critical thought, um, you know, God knows what else it had in there, but that was, uh, our, our charge was then to turn that, that booklet in every Friday, and what we did between Monday and Friday was to fill that um, and get our learning that way. I, I'm not suggesting that's a great way going forward, but I think that if we're looking at 21st century schools, that we need to think about training people for the 21st century workforce and not for sitting in a factory um, and being tested. It, it doesn't happen in the workplace, and I don't know why it needs to happen in the schools. Thank you very much, thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so the question is, um, according to the 2019 Oregon Department of Education Portland Public Schools audit, roughly 80 to 90% of PBS's African-American students did not meet grade level standards on the state's 2017-18 achievement test. So three parts, you can pick which one you want to answer. Uh, how do you feel about standardized testing? Uh, B, do you believe that achievement tests are the best measure of student aptitude? And C, what other measures should PBS consider? Um, first of all, I, I'll say I blog at um, Parents Across America, Oregon website, and my views on testing are really well known if you, um, if you know anything about that organization. Um, we are against uh, the SBAC and tests like that that really are not, um, don't inform instruction at all. So. Um, the best indicators of how kids do, according to research, is um, teacher grades, the grades that the teacher gives kids. So um, that's something to um, pay attention to. But then I want to say a little bit more about my background. I taught at the school um, that first put multiple intelligences into the classroom. We are the school that put theory into practice. So every day, kids had not only reading and math, but they also had music and PE and all of the other classes, this, what we call special classes, were a part of every day. Um, and we didn't give grades. We developed something called um, uh, developmental performance descriptors. And we used that language and those ideas to evaluate kids. And it was. It's called authentic assessment. Portfolios is part of it, but there are lots of different other parts to it too. So um, when you have programs in place that appreciate the strengths that kids have and let them show their intelligence in different ways, then you need different ways to assess. And a standardized test that has high stakes um, coupled with it is not a good way to evaluate kids. Thank you very much. Kennedy Schultz. So this was uh, reading at grade level, 89% aren't. I'm not a fan of standardized testing uh, in the 
scouting world, if you teach a child to do a knot and you say, pick one of these three pictures which knot is correct, they haven't learned anything. So I don't feel like it's a, a way to really demonstrate intelligence or capacity to give them a test that they have to like study and prep for it, but then take and then not deal with for another year or another half a year. I don't feel like that's an effective way to really judge our, uh, the impact. Uh, the achievement testing, I'm not as intimately familiar with, but again, I think that the model of testing we employ in America today is one of the reasons our systems are failing as educational systems. When you talk about other measures, that's quite something. So I think PPS fails at communication with the involved parties that are suffering. They don't get into communities and speak to them. When was the last time you had anybody from PPS come to a barbershop or salon or come to services and ask real questions? Uh. They'll do polling in other places, but they don't come into communities that really should be asked. They don't come to the, to the, uh, to the Asian market and set up there with an interpreter. They don't, they, they effectively don't step into our communities and really engage. And they expect us to come to Fort Public School Board and speak to them. And then they say, huh, we don't understand why this stuff isn't working. Well, yeah, because you're not actively trying to get that information. And we have tons of paid staff that are supposed to be doing this job, and where is that accountability? So for me, the problems are all over the board, and they really reflect poor communication skills by PPS and a, a failure to invest in smaller communities by hearing from those communities. So I hope that answers. Thank you. And this guy. Thank you. So I don't want to lose the, the basic premise of your question. Um, the audit showed that 19% of black students, black third graders don't read, or I'm sorry, only 19% of black third graders read or write at grade level. Um, that's that statistic is so appalling that if you could, it's, it's hard to imagine if that, if, if white students were succeeding or not succeeding at that same level, um, this would be a, a, a crisis that the governor would be involved in, the mayor would be involved in, you'd be pulling all the private businesses in to say, how do we solve this? And my question is why we don't have that same outrage over the fact that this is, the, this is, this is how schools are failing black kids today. Um, and it, it's not new. It's a problem that's been going on for a really long time. So I, I think we need to keep saying it over and over again so that we can keep the focus on that in, in terms of really essential. Around the testing issue, I think, it, I think this is really challenging. I'm gonna echo some of the concerns um, that the other candidates have raised. I mean, I think to the extent the achievement test that you're spending too much time on and you're teaching to the test, they're high stakes for the kids. Um, that's not good. They're not learning in that environment. My fear, however, is that if we aren't measuring somehow the results of what we're doing, it's gonna be really easy for the community and for the administration and frankly for the board to ignore whether the equity efforts we're pushing forward are actually having an impact in the community. Um, I think there's a really huge missed opportunity here um, to draw the teachers in uh, at the table and to say, um, what is a comprehensive method of, of evaluating our students? And our teachers know which students are succeeding, they know which students aren't. Our teachers know which, which, um, uh, which students are progressing and which aren't. And I think that, that we need to get them at the table, we need to get the community at the table, we need to come up with a holistic way of measuring what's happening. But I think it really is important because as a board, we need to hold the superintendent and his entire staff responsible for solving this crisis. And it is a crisis. Oh. Great job, great job. You guys are doing fantastic. Yeah, he's staying under two minutes. It's, it's tough. Thanks for that encouragement. It's tough, but you're doing a good job. I ain't mad at you. Question number three. In 2018, KGW Channel 8 reported the Portland Public School Board is considering selling its administrative building in North Portland after the Portland Diamond Project. 
who offered the district $80 million for the site to build a major league baseball stadium. Go through that one more time. KGW reported that the Portland Public School Board is considering selling its administrative building in North Portland after the Portland Diamond Project, who offered the district $80 million for the site to build a major league baseball stadium. So another three-part question. So, A, are you aware of the ongoing discussions and pain regarding the Albina vision? B, how do you plan to work with the community to make major decisions on the, on the administrative building? And C, what are your personal feelings on Major League Baseball's offer? Again, are you aware of the ongoing discussions and pain regarding the Albina vision? B, how do you plan to work with the community to make major decisions on the administrative building? And C, what are your personal feelings on Major League Baseball's offer? Let's start with you, Mr. Pass. Okay, um, you know, I grew up in Albina, and I still live in Lower Albina, and I'm very excited about the opportunities with the Albina vision. Um, I'm aware of the discussions. My eyebrows kind of raised at that 80 million, thinking, wow, what could we do with 80 million? Um, it's a lot of money, and, and we have a huge gap. Um, although I don't know if selling the building for baseball is the right answer, and I do love baseball but I don't love it there. Um, I love baseball. I was a little league mom. I learned how to score and sat in the rain for many Saturdays for years. And um, I love baseball. I, I also lived in Los Angeles for 10 years, loved the Dodgers. You know, there's nothing like a baseball game, um, but I don't like that location for it personally. Um, I'm aware of the discussions. And as a board member, I look forward to, you know, diving into those discussions with community people that are impacted, people that live there, not just people that commute through there. All right, thank you very much, thank you very much. Same question? Um, well, I have to admit that I don't know a lot about this topic. Um, I have heard um, a little about it, um, but my feeling for um, public schools and the properties that they own is that those schools and the administration building and all of the real estate that Portland Public Schools owns belong to the people. And um, giving up or selling a part of something that belongs to the people should be a big discussion with everybody involved. Because once we give that up, we, we don't have it anymore. It's a fine piece of real estate. I think $80 million is far short of what, what um, it's worth, especially to us as a community. So um, as far as my feelings about baseball um, and sports in general, um, <laughs> it's not something that um, I participate in a lot. And even a spectator, and so um, that's kind of a wash for me. My um, my uh, sports um, spectating and involvement was with my kids when they were soccer players, and um, involved in swimming and other sports at school. So um, for for me, that's not the big part of the question. The big part of the question is that that property belongs to the people, and the people should decide as a community 
um, whether they want to sell it. All right, Kenneth Dussel, same question. Thank you. Uh, aware of the albino vision, modestly. Uh, working with the community, imperative. Major League Baseball, I'm from Southeast Portland. I'm not a politician. Uh, Lens Park, they targeted us because we have a lot of money in our urban renewal fund and they wanted to get a lot of that money to put Major League Baseball in our small park. They wanted us as a place for people with money to party. They didn't have plans for parking or traffic control or anything like that. They were really bent on, uh, we want this urban renewal money so we'll stick our team there. <coughs> I don't know that this is the best make sense thing for our city to sell off these big properties when land is in kind of short supply. We're, the density is, is happening all over. We're bigger and bigger multi-family units, single-family units, excuse me. And you're talking about selling off a huge resource for our Fort Public Schools. What are they going to do instead? There's a major warehouse underneath that, that building. So where does that go? Are we buying land somewhere else? And then how does that all pencil out? At the same time, if we think we can lose this structure, then why do we still have it? Like why This is not... You know, my frustration with the public school and the school board is you have six-figure races. People are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to win a volunteer seat that by some reports takes 80 hours a week. And then they're going to say, hey, you know, let's sell this building for $80 million. They're not talking to poor people. I wouldn't, I would, if it's $80 million, how do I best capitalize on that? I don't have a lot to be selling something off. I still need a place to live. Well, they still need a place to meet. Our board still needs to be someplace. So for me, it's kind of absurd that the board would decide when they're in this really strong position of power and privilege, what happens with this without talking to the communities, without reaching into every part of the PPS system with the PTAs and the, and the school. You can get emails for weather alerts and everything. Why aren't we receiving emails on, hey, what does our community want to do? So, sorry, I hope that answered. Well, you yeah, answer. not a politician. Well, you <laughs> I always think it's an advantage to the last, but all the good answers are already taken. Um, <laughs> so I am familiar with the Albany Division. I haven't been directly involved in it myself, but I am familiar, and I'm very supportive of it. It's a historical wrong, and we need to do what we can uh, in, in the public sector to make these decisions to help to help right that wrong. Um, the um, specifically around the venture building, uh, you know, I think I think that can be part of the solution, um, and it can be part of the Albany Vision. Um, I think there's a, an incredible development opportunity there, but again, what the school district failed to do, is, as Robert and others have pointed out, was really consult with the community. Um, I've worked for government most of my career. Um, I spent 10 years as the budget director for the city of Portland. Um, there are actually rules and laws about when you sell public assets. There's a kind of process you need to go through uh, with the community to declare it surplus, to talk to the community, to figure out what the public interest and what the public good is. Um, we need to make sure that, that Portland Public Schools is doing that um, as well as they go through this process. Um, because I think, again, there, 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 are, there are opportunities here that are probably higher, that are, not probably, they are higher and better use um, than a baseball stadium on that, on that site. Specific, my personal feeling about baseball, I'm a big baseball fan. Um, I like the site that they are now talking about, which is over on the other side of the river by the Fremont Bridge. Um, my view of baseball overall is that if we can bring it to Portland without a public subsidy, uh, we absolutely should do that. I think it could have some positive economic development if it's in the right place. But to the extent there's a public subsidy involved, we've got a lot better uses of, um, for that money uh, in, in the schools and other places within the community. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So I understand that the building has some strong history, and uh, 
I know that the developments in the city are often at the cost or the, at the expense of black folks or at the expense of things that have been created or intended for us. And I definitely think, uh, I also agree that 80 million is, is not enough. And also uh, I definitely wanna uh, acknowledge that the building could use some upgrades and attention. And I'm just not sure that baseball is the direction or pathway uh, to do that. Um, I also am, uh, I see in other cities, they have major league baseball teams or, or big baseball or different basketball teams that aren't necessarily in the main city or in the capital city. It can be in Tualatin, it can be in a, na a nearby city uh, that has a different uh, dynamic and history with how buildings are acquired and how communities are engaged. Uh, so I would advocate, if, if you're asking my personal opinion, I, I wouldn't advocate for that, but I would advocate for community uh, benefit agreements and processes that would engage folks who are directly impacted by the development. And I'm just thinking about congestion uh, with traffic and, and all of uh, the ripple effects of something like that um, in that particular area. And also, we got a lot of staff that works there, and I'm not sure if there's a comparable space uh, like that in Portland that could be accessed at the rate that we need. Uh, so those those are critical questions, and um, I think at the if it doesn't if it's not at the expense of uh, our youth and our public, I'm all for. Uh, having a baseball team, and I think that would be really great as something that to get folks engaged and excited, but uh, not at the expense of us. All right, thank you very much. Ms. Mayor, we're gonna start with you. Uh, question four, please describe how you will ensure that the PTS social studies teachers can implement the new statewide social studies standards. Question again is please describe how you will ensure that all PBS social studies teachers can implement the new statewide social studies standards. Well, um, the, the standards, um, first of all, um, guide teachers um, and um, you know they are required to teach a, a curriculum but um, I think there are things in place that um, other school board members have worked on that have to do with uh, multi multicultural programs that we should not forget exist. Um, we should um, make sure that um, the standards are met, of course, but sometimes the standards really don't address the needs of the students. So um, what, I, what I would say is that we have to make sure that when we teach social studies, um, history, geography, and that kind of thing that we're um, making it real for students and making sure that um, we're making it personable to them and making it um, something that um, is meaningful to them as, as curriculum should be. So um, I guess I, 
I haven't really reviewed the standards yet, and that would be something I would do, but I would make sure that, um, that we don't forget some of the work that's already been done by board members in the past and make sure that some of those programs are, um, make it to the classroom uh, because it's important that kids see themselves as part of history. All right. Same question. Well, I will ensure the social studies standards, right? Ethnic so, studies. So ethnic studies. Ethnic studies. Ethnic studies. Excellent. Thank ethnic you. studies. Audible, audible, audible. House Bill 2845, ethnic studies. House Bill 2845, ethnic studies. 2845, thank you for that clarity because I was like, I hadn't heard of social <laughs> studies. All right. My apologies. Uh, is everybody familiar with proficiency grading? Uh, and, the, and the ridiculous way it's implemented, I have two kids, they have different classes. This teacher implements proficiency grading this way, that one, that way, and when I come to the vice principal, actually when I come to the teacher first, because for the contract you have to talk to the teacher first, and then you can have a vice principal, and then you can escalate the very clunky process that's anti-parent power, and I don't like that personally. At any rate, so once I go through that, there is no answer to it. Like there is no, now they'll deliver consistently. There's no punitive element because you have a contract to negotiate how that gets rolled out. I'm afraid that this will fall into the same thing. It will fall into the same, this amazing teacher rolls it out this way, this teacher doesn't really understand it or has a dis different belief in something else and I'm afraid that that's what's going to happen. And as I understand the power of the board is to hold the superintendent accountable to make these things happen. And if the superintendent doesn't want to do that, then that superintendent should go away. And I don't think we should be doing a national search for another superintendent. I think we should look in Portland and start bringing people from Portland into these positions because they know Portland best. And we see this across the city. Now we get off of PPS, but we see this when the police chief was hired. Luckily, we have amazing police chief now. But when they continue this national search, it really is void of a recognition of our, our, our neighborhoods, our communities. And with this in particular, uh, uh, I just, I fear that the rollout won't be uh, uniformly applied and that, that the kids will suffer from it. So what would I do? Hold the superintendent accountable to make it happen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that our teachers have the support and training they need in terms of implementing these, these, these new um, ethnic study standards. Um, and I think, you know, pivoting a little bit off of what Robert said, there is this, this question of sort of the board's role and the superintendent's role. Um, it's the superintendent's role to implement these new standards, and it's the superintendent's role to, to make sure that's being rolled out correctly and, and throughout the district. It's the board's role to hold him responsible for that. And I think that's where we ask, uh, we have to ask the right questions, we have to make sure the resources are allocated um, to make sure that that's happening, and we have to be double checking, right? I mean, we can't just listen to superintendent tells us it's okay, we've gotta be checking um, on our own as well to make sure that that, 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 that is happening. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier um, within the Odyssey program, it is a history-based focus option program. And, and as such, there is a lot um, of history that has been um, poorly taught for a long time. One of the things that we as a community came together in this last year, Civil War is a huge focus, right, for one of the, for the middle school students. Um, and one of the things we did this last year was um, um, send the, the, well, the teachers, we worked with the teachers, raised the money to sort of front it, the school district reimburses them later, um, so they could do two weeks of specific training in, over the summer 
to look at the curriculum of Odyssey through an equity lens. And it really shifted how we teach about civil war. And it really shifted to a much more focus on the causes of civil war, slavery, the build up to it, um, something that we hadn't been doing as, as, as good a job of. And I think that it was that collaborative approach. The teachers wanted to do this. Um, they were happy to give up two weeks of their summer, happy, they were willing to give up two weeks of their summer vacation <laughs> to do it because it was really important and the curriculum at the school is better now as a result. Um, so again, I think it is really important that, that our teachers feel supported in implementing these new standards and that as a board we hold the district accountable to this. And I, I just wanted to say, I think both of y'all were right to my understanding House Bill 2845 is a, it's a social studies centered bill, but it's a, it's a mandate for ethnic studies within social studies. And uh, folks from, or youth from Apano and youth from Momentum Alliance, which is, which is a organization with youth of color addressing the needs and gaps that they experience, uh, were involved with making that bill pass. Uh, so I would definitely think that including those folks centering black communities, SEI, folks who are on the ground right now, uh, working uh, with youth to be involved in that implementation side and connect those folks uh, with the advisory group. Um, I think I would also echo our relationship or uh, communication with the superintendent is going to be key and critical. And uh, there is work that has been done in this community for years. Uh, I'm thinking about the African American baseline papers, uh, social studies curriculum that uh, folks like Joyce Harris um, helped implement. Uh, so pulling those pieces that already exist, we don't have to reinvent the, the wheel, uh, but build on what this community has already been working on into that implementation side. And as a, a culturally responsive ed educator, I would advocate for a set of principles or guidelines as we navigate this process um, as centering co-creation of learning uh, in conversations about hard histories and, and, and making sure that everybody feels affirmed reflected and uh, celebrated um, as they show up in these conversations as the, their authentic selves and, and making sure that educators, youth, and different folks who are at the table um, making this bill pass and more folks who need to be at the table um, in the implementation process are things that I would absolutely advocate for. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so HB 2845 um, directed the the state to the state the districts of the state to uh, form a body an advisory body that would be made up of 14 people from various ethnic communities and we absolutely need to fully implement it. The start date, from what I understand, is the the coming school year. Um, and the ethnic studies is an effort to recognize the histories and contributions and perspectives of ethnic minorities. And not just in high school, but in, in kindergarten through high school. So it's an important element of you know, all of the kids' education throughout their, their uh, educational career. Um, and yeah, Momentum Alliance, Apano, and several other groups came in coalition to make that uh, happen in the 2017 session and I'm, I'm fully supportive of it. I, I think it's really important for us to know our histories and to have, um, to be reflected in what we're reading, especially for our children, um, our children to have people to look up to. Thank you guys very much, thank you very much. All right, so any, oh, one more thing. Uh, if you guys have a question, you can get a three, point, uh, three by five card, write your question down and we can get that question answered for you. Um, so again, if you guys do have questions, 
feel free to write them down and time permitting, we will get to as many of these as possible. If not, they will be on the site. You guys can go and check it out there. And so this was, um, this next question was an additional question, but I wanna put it in uh, now. We're gonna start with you, uh, Mr. Schultz. How do you plan to advocate specifically for black and African-American PPS students? Again, the question is, how do you plan to advocate specifically for black and African-American PPS students? I, I mean, to advocate for, I think, is to first listen to and be involved with, come to service, go to gathering places, invest in the personal time of connecting with these communities, specifically the black community in Portland. Uh, I currently attend uh, the East Portland Action Plan that previously had a very good uh, uh, participation from several minority communities, and it was a phenomenal place to network in here and get the pulse of what's happening from the view of those communities, because frankly, looking at it, I can't make determinations. I can certainly recognize that bad things are happening. We're not evolving. Our, our educational system's been failing at this for quite some time, and yes, there's been phenomenal successes that people have fought every inch for and deserve to be honored for, but we're still not getting there. Each election cycle comes, and it's the same folks that come out, there's a lot of money behind them. They're very connected to parties. They owe debts for endorsements and things, because that's my personal view. And they get to this position, and then what? Then what happens? And they're for four years. That's a long time. And if they're not performing well, we don't like it. What happens next? It's a volunteer spot. So how much do we really challenge them? Why aren't there seven black faces up here? That disturbs me greatly. I'm in zone seven. Two people ran. And mine was the last minute choice. Like, you know what? There should be more than one name on the ballot. And so advocating for the community, encouraging people to run and speak for themselves, getting into, into these situations like with the, that I described with Nedia, and, and saying, hey, why aren't you educating these people on how to be involved and represent themselves? How to get on committees that then get grants and scholarships for community events that are paid, so you're not bearing that as a community. As, you, as an organizer, you know this, to try to get a band and close the street and, and have all these obstacles in your way, those same obstacles are in our part of the school system, and I don't think enough people are legitimately saying, I want to hear from those people, and actually going into those and doing that. They say it until they get on the, on the board, and then something different happens. And it's, uh, it's often, you know, and, not, and to be fair, oftentimes life takes over, right? And the hopes don't happen. But I've been kind of, I guess, living this for some time. I wanted to know more about how systems work when I saw things being employed that I didn't think were fair, and now here I am. I put my name down and have, you know, to attend all these great things, because I love this, frankly. I ended a trip, I was with a bunch of scouts up in uh, Camas and left early, sorry, I'm over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, partner is about to get on the road. Better than Scott. Yeah, that, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, I, the community engagement around these issues is gonna be essential. I, I don't have the answer, I don't have the lived experience that the black community has, and so I, I certainly don't have the answer in terms of how we're gonna solve these issues, and so we need to figure out a way to better communicate, to better engage, um, and to, to really bring voices to the table. And, and as Robert said, there are lots of different ways we can do that, lots of ways that the Portland Public Schools has been failing to do that. I think um, the decisions the board makes around boundaries are hugely important. Um, you know, we talk about um, gentrification, and we talk about development, and we talk about decisions by Prosper Portland, and the city of Portland, and zoning that impact that. We don't talk as much about school boundary decisions which are a major driver in gentrification, both positively and negatively. That's got to be the part of the conversation as we talk about boundaries. What's gonna be the impact on that school? And how do we make sure that those 
those boundary decisions, um, again, ameliorate some of the historical wrongs and are always done um, to benefit um, the, 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 the schools that the district has failed in the past. Um, I think other issues around teacher and principal retention, um, you know, the, the audit has pointed this out and some other studies have pointed this out as well, that we've just got huge turnover in, in some of these schools and, and it's, you know, of course these students aren't getting ahead when they're getting, you know, new teachers throughout the year, when they're getting new principals, when there's not that stability. We've got to figure out a way um, to bring that stability as well. But first and foremost, we need to figure out a way to engage our community um, so that the solutions that are coming to us are in fact community-driven solutions and not top-down board solutions. Thank you very much. I definitely know the system and how it functions now is failing black students. Uh, so I think for a long time, we know organizations like Black United Front and a number of other groups, SEI, Black Caring Initiative, have been holding it down uh, and filling the roles uh, that um, are unable to be filled uh, with the structure and, and staffing of PPS. And I think there's a, there's a number of things uh, that I would advocate for. And um, I've dedicated my life to centering black student success. And uh, my own experience has definitely painted um, the way that I moved through uh, this community. And um, I know uh, restorative justice uh, discipline practices have worked for, for black students in PPS before, and I would definitely be invested in bringing it back. Uh, we know uh, recently Jamila Munson wrote an article and, and mentioned that black students in middle schools are uh, disciplined at a higher rate than white students. So thinking about the practices that are happening right now to be more holistic. Um, I don't want to see kids being suspended under the age of seven, for example, uh, and also uh, just centering early learning initiatives uh, that encourage folks to be motivated to learn and show up to school and also uh, have a wraparound approach. Uh, so staffing is also an issue with a lot of transition with teachers and principals and I think when folks feel uh, nurtured and invested in with their own jobs, we're gonna see their ability to uh, reach black students uh, even better. Uh, so those key things are parts of things that I would wanna do and uh, also this boundary review process needs to decenter voices with uh, lots of wealth and access and recenter the communities who are most impacted and protect the, the teachers and experiences that we deserve. Thank you very much. Thank you, that was awesome. Um, so how am I gonna show up for black children? Um, I've been a member of this community for, I'm not gonna say the number, <laughs> but a very long time. And I know one of the biggest challenges that I'll face, um, should I be elected, will be working with the dominant culture um, establishment to, uh, to do the deep community work that's required to get people in the room that need to be in the room. As a community engagement uh, professional, um, when I'm looking at an issue that I need to work with, uh, with community, I always um, rank the stakeholders in the universe and the people that are most impacted by any decision made, especially by a public um, uh, entity, need to have uh, people around the table who are the most impacted and hear from them first, and you go out from there. Um, 
I currently do a lot of work in Northeast Portland and uh, in, in the housing arena, and, and it's been difficult to convince um, the, my team members uh, the importance of showing up at barbershops, at churches, um, at grocery stores, and that I can do organizing work in those spaces, even though they're not the traditional, they're not the urban leagues, they're not the SEIs, which we all also work with, but that we need to meet people where we're at. Um, and so in terms of advocating for black kids, it's, it is the reason I'm running. Um, it is the reason I'm running. I'm running to advocate for all kids, but I specifically want to be a voice for black children. Thank you. some of these initiatives um, over the past couple of years um, with uh, different um, members of the African-American community. Um, we, um, this summer, had um, a conference uh, and brought in people from across the country from Dignity in Schools campaign. And uh, we talked about uh, SROs especially uh, in the classroom and also um, counsel more counselors than cops. And that has evolved into care, not cops. And I think these are ways of ad advocating for um, black students who often find themselves being uh, disciplined um, disproportionately um, compared to other kids. So I think that's one thing that I would do is uh, uh, advocate in that way. And um, at the time, same time that we were um, advocating for more cops in the classroom, we were uh, cutting funds for restorative justice, and that just mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. Um, another thing um, is I would try to get more African-American teachers in the classroom. Um, uh, students learn more when they see somebody who like who looks like them in the classroom. We actually had an initiative to get grannies in the classroom because um, there were some in our group that thought if you can't have teachers to have um, you know some grandmothers who um, can actually help keep kids um, on task. Would, would be a good thing, and, and I've seen that work in other places, and I think that's, that's not a bad idea. Um, and certainly I think I would prefer that over um, uh, SROs. So those are some of the things that I would do, um, besides just making a school a great place where kids want to be. All right, thank you so much. So we're gonna get a, a little bit off what you guys have planned. Um, so I worked as a restorative justice coordinator at Opti Green. Uh, that was my job when they first brought it to PBS. And in one school year, we went from 128 suspensions to four. Um, which, which is a great thing, but uh, adds a lot of things that happen in our, our school districts and with the funding, when that was cool, that was cool. And then once we got away from that, they took it out of the schools and it isn't there anymore. And so I want to talk about something that is very, uh, very, very real to me. I have a two-year-old son who in two years will be attending a PPS school. And so I wanna know from the candidates that we have here, what are your proposed solutions 
to the preschool to prison pipeline that is occurring. Again, that question is, what are your proposed solutions to the preschool to prison pipeline that is occurring? And so I don't know if everybody knows this, but they are building privatized prisons off of third grade reading scores. This is really happening in our country. They're building prisons off of third grade reading scores because the numbers are telling you if a kid is not reading on pace in third grade, they won't be on course in sixth grade, and then they won't be on course in 10th grade, and by that time, I'm not gonna continue going to school. That's right. And so they are building privatized prisons for kids of color. African-American boys are suspended at a five time higher rate than other kids. Um, expulsions lead to prison. And so these are things that are really happening in our community. And so I wanna give you guys a couple seconds to think of this, but what are your proposed solutions to the preschool? We gotta hear that again. Preschool. Prison pipeline. My son will be in preschool next year. And so to think that they're prepping our kids to go to prison, what do you guys do? What do you guys' plans as being a part of this board to help come up with some solutions? And thank you for whoever uh, made this question. This is an amazing question. Thank you so very much. And so we're going to start with you, uh, Mr. Scott. Great. Thank you for the question. Um, and I, there's, there's, there's a number of things I'm, I'm sort of thinking about as, 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 you're, as you're talking about it. And I think one of the key things, you know, is figuring out how we, for lack of a better term, how do we, how do we decriminalize behavior of our students? Mm. Um, and, and, and it starts really early. And someone else on this panel mentioned it a little while ago. And we need to figure out a way. There are disruptions in the classroom. There are things that are happening. But those things are happening for a reason. And they're happening because those kids are arriving without the social supports they need. The school district's not providing the wraparound services. Um, and instead, we turn and we, 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 we criminalize that behavior. We suspend those students and we start that from a very early age. And so we've got to move away from that, first and foremost. Um, and I think, you know, it continues. And, 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 you know, in terms of providing those wraparound services and, and making sure those students succeed, and some of the things we talked about earlier about increasing overall student success, as you mentioned, if we can get those third grade reading scores up, that's going to have an impact for years to come. Um, and finally, I, I don't know if this is where you intended your question to go, but um, you know, I think when you talk about high school and we talk about school resource officers, and this has been in the news and it's a really big issue, and, and again, I don't have a solution here. One of the things the district didn't do a good job of is talking to the community. So I'm certainly not going to come in and say this is what we should do on SROs um, without having that larger conversation. But I do feel like there's an opportunity there. Um, when we talk about community policing, and whether when we're talking, whether it's an actual police officer, whether it's a community service officer who's unarmed, or whether it's some other, um, you know, secure, some other person playing a security function, you need to do it in a way that you're building the trust, so that that person knows every student in that school. They understand where those students are coming from, and when something happens, they're trained in how to do restorative justice. They're trained in how to de-escalate a situation, and they're trained in terms of how to solve it without making it a criminal justice matter. Um, I think all those things can help, but, but it's a really important conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for that question. Uh, and that, to be quite honest, has fueled the reason why I'm running for the school board and why I am an educator. And I have felt uh, the impact of being uh, thrown into uh, suspensions and being disciplined in ways that weren't meeting my needs as a student. And uh, those 
prison-like environments, harsh policies that don't acknowledge holistic approaches to learning and looking at a full picture, a full person story, um, are things, uh, things to think about. And I also wanted to point out that there are uh, schools called Sun Schools and PPS that have uh, partnership with the county with wraparound supports, after school programs, uh, investment in arts and access to health services and food assistance, housing assistance. And those are the things that we need to think about um, in all of our schools uh, to determine um, those other socio-emotional needs uh, that students are showing up with. But uh, thinking about early learning initiatives are important since we know uh, that that third graders who are at reading level uh, are, are more likely of staying behind. Uh, so we need to have strong literacy programs for our young folks and also the restorative justice efforts, the wraparound supports are critical. Uh, so having uh, sound policies where when we see people getting continuously suspended, that we stop and say, what does this person mean? What's going on at home? What other resources could help them build skills and build the things that they need on their own uh, to, to get through this difficult time? Uh, so thinking about uh, not suspending our young folks under seven, in addition to um, putting a stop uh, in the process and changing how it looks. I'm not a fan of pushing folks out when they're struggling. Uh, if, if a student is struggling, taking them out of school isn't gonna help. Uh, so in-school interventions are absolutely uh, what I'm advocating for. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, if I had a two-year-old uh, black son, I would be terrified and concerned. Yeah. Um, I come from a prison-affected family, and I've been working off and on as a volunteer or a paid person in the prison uh, justice system, uh, teaching algebra to uh, formerly incarcerated youth, uh, teaching a Girl Scout program in Coffee Creek Correctional Institute, and so I know the potential of the adults in the prison system, and we need to prevent those uh, young children from being criminalized. Um, part of that is one of the solutions is hiring more black teachers that have high expectations for the kids that walk through that door. Um, I think that's really important. Um, the, the one black teacher I had, um, I can't even remember what grade I was in, but she had very high expectations. I can't say that for all of the other uh, um, teachers that I've experienced in Portland Public, but she had very high expectations for all of her students. Um, we also need to provide support services to kids in the classroom or through the Sun Schools program, more support services. We also need to help teachers um, determine which behaviors need, you know, how to address certain behaviors because um, as a mother, um, I've actually sat in my kids' class and observed and I can see, um, I've seen kids being called out that are not, they're not doing anything wrong. It's the interpretation the teacher has. Um, I think it's really important for our teachers to get additional training on how to deal with black boys in particular. Yes. Come on now, come on now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think the education that kids are going to get in the future is going to be very different than our education. Um, and we need to be involved and to make sure that kids are getting the kind of education we want them to have. Even preschool now is being taught online. 
Um, and that's the worst kind of education for a little one. Um, they need to be active, they need to be using their senses, they need to be learning how to act socially and interact with other kids. Um, and then also, and then as they continue on, there is more and more ed tech being planned um, for kids to be receiving a lot of their, their um, curriculum over the internet. Um, and this is something that's coming. This is something that is coming from the federal level and then um, being uh, implemented at, at the state level and being pushed on to local school districts. We need to know about this and be involved so that our kids get the kind of education that we want them to have. And then as far as um, kids falling behind and that kind of thing, we need to have tutoring and all kinds of services for kids because usually discipline problems start with an academic problem. If they can't, if they don't know, if they don't get it, um, and they, they don't have any way to get help, we need to have those, those uh, programs in place so that kids can be tutored and get the help that they need so that they don't have problems at school. And we also need to give them problems, uh, or give them opportunities inside school to have choices to learn what they want to learn. And all of those different kinds of things can help kids succeed at school, um, especially um, black kids who whose talents so many times aren't, aren't recognized in the, in the general curriculum. So parents need to be involved to make sure that their kids are getting the kind of education that they want them to have. And I think that cuts, that would cut down on the school to prison pipeline. Thank you very much. Is that cool if I stand up? I get Come on, baby, you gotta preach. I get a little pissed about this topic, frankly. Here I am, a white guy, and I hear this, it sickens me. We shouldn't have a pipeline. Any kid going through the system should have the same opportunity. That's not real. And it disgusts me that the, in the black community, the things you make money off of are sports, hair, and prison system. I mean, that's, it's messed up, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say judge, sorry. So for me, I, I feel very strongly that the, the, the way forward is, when was the last time a black pastor was asked, hey, can you come read to our kindergarten class? Hey. When, when was the last time a strong black man was employed to teach children? I can tell you my, first, my daughter's first after school care provider was a strong black man that brought his pit bull, and he was an amazing fellow, <laughs> incredibly intelligent, and I was so happy that that was our first interaction with a person in, in power, in education, that could break this paradigm that, you know, a strong black man can't educate. And what about bringing ex-cons back into the classroom to teach and speak on the, the travesty of our system and tell those young minds, hey, you need to pay attention here, let's read together. But that's impossible, right? Because they got a criminal background, they go through all these hoops. Those kind of creative solutions of bringing community members back yes. are where I think the answer is. And I don't think it's explored enough in PPS as generally in our society, and I think that this is beyond PPS. We have a shortfall in our budget. Why aren't we looking at our local cities and municipalities and say, hey, awesome. this is the product of our whole society, is these children. This is the, the like, this is what we're gonna retire to is these kids. So if we're not taking care of them, 
that we're failing as a society, and every part of our society should be stepping in. Portland Prosper, the Peabot, everybody should be weighing in on this. And, and frankly, and I, I'm sure my time's about up, black success is societal success. Yes. Just as much as Native American success is society success, Asian American, all, all of these minority groups are the success and future success, and I think it's a travesty that we haven't dealt with this, and a lot of these folks have been around and had the opportunity and still haven't fixed it. We need different people doing this. That's my guy. But we want to definitely uh, stay mindful of, uh, of our time. No, you know, you did, no, 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 I'm not talking about you, you did great. Uh, so I'm going to ask you guys one more question. Um, and after this question, we're gonna get into our closing statements. So the final question for you guys, um, this is a big one for me. The word equity has been used frequently in education. What does equity mean to you? And how do you plan to lead with equity as a board member? Getting that question one more time, is the word equity has been used frequently in education. What does equity mean to you? And how do you plan to lead with equity as a board member? Let's start with you, Ms. Clark. Uh, I definitely see equity being used as a, as a buzzword and uh, it's important uh, to name what that actually means for each of us. So I appreciate that question being asked and uh, the system itself uh, within PPS, I think mirrors an education system that disproportionately impacts uh, black folks, queer folks, and a number of other marginalized identities. So uh, equity for me in this work uh, means uh, centering the voices who are the most impacted, centering the folks who uh, don't have the same resources as other schools, and, and thinking about uh, the processes for decision making, the ways that we communicate what's happening, uh, the staffing that we have, uh, and including all of those pieces as we think through decision making. So there's a racial equity uh, tool that was drafted and um, that was done uh, by a staff member uh, within PPS. But I think in my ideal uh, world, we connect with parent groups, community members, educators, and students um, when we create these foundational documents um, that mirror uh, the way that we walk through our policy. Uh, so uh, doing that in a way uh, through our financial decisions uh, as board members is important and thinking about who has traditionally uh, been privileged, who's traditionally benefited, and centering the folks who, who don't fall into that answer or who don't uh, fall into that category is something that I absolutely want to do, and um, that is about budgets, that's about uh, morale and culture, and, and that's about uh, just feeling yourself reflected and affirmed in all, in all spaces and processes. Thank you very much. Mr. Pat? Uh, yes, so uh, PPS has a racial equity policy just like every other institution in this city and probably in the country, and that policy directs the dis district to significantly, significantly change its practices to achieve racial equity in education, and they do that by um, raising the achievement of all children, which is a great thing, 
But I think where they're falling short is being intentional in their language about black children. And I say that, you know, we use the term people of color, which diffuses the impact that black children have had in Portland um, yes, going through the system. So I think we need to name the problem. We need to be okay with saying black children are failing. And, and it's not that children are failing, it's the system is failing them. So I feel like, you know, there's a piece of paper there that's, you know, put in place. Um, and I will know that we're successful when I see um, the organizational chart, the rate of the uh, proportionality of teaching staff of color, and some of those other, um, you know, success, markers of success, that we won't need that piece of paper. But right now, that piece of paper is not working for black children. Yes. We're not seeing the outcomes for black children. Thank you very much, thank you very much. Ms. Mayor. Well, for the last several years, I've been um, doing this workshop with um, some African-American friends of mine um, at the national level, and it's called um, Impacts of Poverty, um, Race, and Cultural Bias on Educational Opportunities. And what we do in that workshop is we present a lot of statistics and we tell the story and we recognize um, what the impacts are and then we we strive to figure out what we're going to do about those so i think that's part of what i want to do on the board is to implement some of the ideas that we have come up with um, at, at these different conferences um, and I think naming the problem is, is definitely something that, that needs to be done, but um, a, lot, a lot of it has to do with money. Um, and we have people on the board who make sure that some communities get more or get first than other communities, and I think that needs to change. Um, we need to, we need to, in order to get equity, we're going to have to deal with inequities that have been going on for decades. So I think, um, since I can't be more specific right now, um, I think that taking these, these problems that we know exist and tackling them, um, and actually just getting new people on the board who have different ideas about this topic is going to be a huge um, game changer, I think. Thank you very much. So, Could you repeat it for me? The word equity has been used frequently in education. What does equity mean to you, and how do you plan to lead with equity as a board member? <laughs> so for me, Sorry, standing up, but sitting in these chairs is a little intense, right? For me, equity is me getting on the board and supporting Ms. Clark or Mr. Pass. To me, that's equity. Because if we populate the board with other white folks that don't support their voice from this community, then are we being equitable in our representation? I don't think we are. So that's, for me, partly where it comes from. Also, being confronted with discomfort, right? Uh, Cameron is a fellow from the community that came up with, I believe it's, oh, you have to forgive me, I think it's black coffee, I think is what he calls it. And he says, white people should spend the money for the coffee so that black people can come together and have coffee. That's something in it, right? It took me a moment, I was like, wait, what? 
But that's the purpose of that is to challenge you and to accept that that is needed and be aware of it and to be a part of it if you choose or just be, have it on your radar, right? I mean, to me, I mean, he has his own purpose to sell it. He says, we'll say it much better than I. So for me, equity is a matter of uh, looking past the quality of access. I've dealt with this recently where they say in an after-school program, everybody's welcome and the cost is $70. And you go, okay, well, everybody with $70 can put their kid in that program. And then they say, now, this free one, equal access to all, and it's free. Well, what about the kids that didn't have the $70? Shouldn't they have a little bit better chance of getting into that free class? And isn't that a true equitable access to that service? And I'm not saying only them and you exclude the others. I'm saying you, you terrorist the thing so that it allows their access. And I think that attitude and that thinking should dominate our, our public school system. We should be thinking of ways to bring the folks that aren't showing up into these situations for services or after school programs, et cetera. I think there's some phenomenal folks in the sub program that have a better view of this thing. They're, they're feeding people in masses to get understanding of what their student body is. How are they not being brought forth to the top? Why aren't they on the front page of the PBS website talking about how you can support them and help them? Why aren't these community gatherings being supported? So that's, for me, that's where equity comes in. Thank you very much, thank you very much. Thanks. Um, so I'm gonna actually address this, talking a little bit about um, why I'm running it and why I almost didn't. And so um, I'm in zone one. Um, for those of you who don't know, Julia Spazza-Brown is the current incumbent in zone one. Um, she decided not to run again. She's a Latina woman, the only person of color uh, on the board at the current time. Um, and when I found out she wasn't running, uh, my initial reaction was, well, you need to find some people of color to run in that zone. And I actually held off for quite a while in terms of, and, and, and talked to other people in the community in terms of recruiting, because I will be totally blunt and real, replacing Julie with me is not good for the district, and it's not good for the board, and it's not good for the city. Um, nobody did step forward. Um, there was about a week left to go before the filing deadline um, when I did jump in. I think what that means um, when you ask this equity question, which is really important, is um, what does that mean if I'm fortunate to get on the board that my responsibilities are? And I think my responsibility is to carry forward some of the work that Julie was doing. As Robert said, carry forward some of the work that some of the other board members are going to be pushing for and really make sure that although my lived experience is as a white privileged male, um, this is the society was sort of made for me, right? Um, that I bring that privilege and try and use that privilege to improve um, the school district for people who don't have that and do what I can uh, to hopefully be an ally uh, in terms of some of this work. Specifically what that means is, is the district needs to continue leading with racial equity. They do have a racial equity policy. I think we're gonna be looking at that again over the next year or two. Um, we need to, to be focusing every decision we make, whether it's boundary decisions, funding decisions, um, curriculum decisions with that equity lens. Um, this is something that I, I had an opportunity at the city of Portland um, doing the budget work. Um, um, Dante James, um, some of you may know, was the equity and human rights um, director. Um, he was a peer of mine, but he was really a teacher of mine over the last few years. Um, he helped me understand my role in those budget decisions at the city and how to bring equity into that conversation in a way that I didn't know how to do before. And I hope that's a skill that I can bring to the board if I'm fortunate to get elected. So. Thank you one more time, man. You guys have done an amazing job. And just so we are clear on what equity is, equity is being impartial and being fair. Um, I know a lot of times we hear a lot of stuff about equality, and equality is giving everybody the same thing. You know, if we were, if I gave everybody here a size 
11 pair of shoes. Some of us can fit them, some can't. Doing that equitably would be giving you what you need. And so I appreciate you guys' uh, response to that. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to give you guys all two minutes. You guys are doing an amazing job at standing two minutes. My partner shows them with like two minutes and six seconds like four times. But it's cool. You guys are good stuff. So we're going to give all you guys two minutes. No, it is good. Man. Uh, give everybody two minutes uh, for your closing statements. We're going to start with you, Mr. Pass. Thank you. Um, so I mentioned this earlier, but if you came in late, um, ballots are going to go out on May 1st, and the election is on May 21st. Um, in Oregon, you mail in your ballots, and so you have an opportunity to get your ballot and think about it for three weeks. But please do get them in, um, especially black folks. We need to um, train ourselves to vote in every election you know, whether it's interesting or not, because we have a voice. Um, the other thing is I just want to let people know it's my first time running for office. I've been endorsed by the Portland Association of Teachers, the Oregon Education Association, For Our Children's Future, which is the organization that's comprised of former PPS board members, uh, Stand for Children, Governor Barbara Roberts, and Senators Luke Frederick, Abel Gordley, Margaret Carter, and multiple labor unions. As a 25-year volunteer in the classrooms, I've taught business basics to fifth and eighth graders at King, where and in fact I taught in my mom's class, and at Beaumont Middle School. I led um, outdoor recreation adventures for low-income youth. I still do that. Um, I facilitated Girl Scouts Beyond Bars at Coffee Creek Correctional. Um, that was an amazing uh, transformative experience for me. I've taught algebra to formerly incarcerated youth, also transformative. The best students ever. I mean, they actually wanted to be in the algebra class, where most high schoolers don't. Um, I, that was to get them into pre-apprenticeship programs to get into the electrical union. And of course, you know, I volunteered in my own kids' classrooms, um, you know, for the last 16 years or so. So I'm asking for your um, support today. I need 47,622 votes to win, and um, would appreciate your support and, and consideration. Thanks. Thank you. 
you know, a day before. I, I thought I would make a lot of different decisions than um, she makes, and I think that would be good for uh, Portland kids, and especially African-American kids and kids of color. So that's why I decided to be here. Last time, um, four years ago, this election cost the two people that ran over $300,000. The same money that drives that kind of election drives the people who win it. So I'm thinking that we need somebody who represents um, regular people. And uh, that's what I intend to do. Thank you very much. Brother Schultz. <laughs> so, uh, I'm from Texas. I don't know if y'all can tell. I'm a traditional Portlander. Uh, I've been here since, uh, what, 91? I've had family here for a lot of years. And uh, throughout my time here, PPS has continued to go through these up and down cycles with largely the same type of candidates coming forward. Highly educated, very well positioned financially, uh, kids that are often out of school or have been through the system and there's great value, there's great people. I'm not saying they're not great, but I'm saying they don't represent the folks that are working. I still have grease on my hands from fixing my truck the other day. I got dirt on my shoes from being out in the woods with a bunch of kids. That's the number one thing I bring is that I tend to be the more relatable person. I'm approachable. If you catch me at a neighborhood association meeting or on a phone call, you can talk to me for an hour and a half. I'm that guy that you can, and we'll also gladly talk back, obviously. So <laughs> when I looked at the ballot and who was, I, I, I put my name in the last minute, right? Four hours before it closed. I saw Michelle's name on there, and I recognized that name. Uh, no disrespect, Ms. Clark, but I recognized that name, and I was like, yeah, there's no one like that on this on, in Zone 7. That was very frustrating to me, and I was like, and there's nobody that's going to get on that ballot and say, hey, there needs to be more like these folks, like Ms. Clark and, and Mr. Pass in Zone 7 speaking of, why is there only two candidates from my zone coming to this very influential, powerful race? Because you're going to, in this seat, dictate what happens in our, in our school system. It's the crux of our whole city. And yet, there's one here, three there, two there, and yet you have board members that say, oh, I was putting 80 hours in, I still couldn't get the job, and I have to step away from it. That's, that's broken. Do we need more board seats? Well, let's advocate for that. Do we need to better utilize our systems to get the voice of the people? Well, let's utilize that. And I don't hear people say that. They say, oh, well, you know, I'll take my stab at doing the same thing the last one did. And I don't think that's helping us. I don't think we've gotten anywhere in the last 30 years with that kind of attitude. I see your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's Scott. So I, I, I want to thank Nicole again for pulling this together. It's a lot of work, and this is a good oh, So thank you. I want to end with a little bit of optimism um, in, in terms of, of where I think PPS can, can go. And as I mentioned earlier, I've been frustrated with the condition of the schools, uh, the broken relationship between the district and our teachers, um, and the fact that our schools produce such widely disparate outcomes. Um, I do think we're at a, a potential turning point. Right. We've, we've hired a superintendent who is very, very focused on equity issues. Um, he's brought in a really um, talented leadership team and he's talking and saying the right things. What we need is a board that's going to ask the right questions and hold him accountable for achieving results on these things. Um, the voters of Portland have been very supportive of the schools. We passed a bond in 2012, a bond in 2017, and another one coming up in 2020. 
it is essential that we get this additional funding in order to rebuild and modernize all of our schools throughout the district. But we're only gonna get it if we maintain the public's trust. And we're only gonna maintain the public's trust if we have people on the board who are transparent, asking the right questions, holding the district accountable. And finally, um, there's a potential for getting an additional $2 billion out of the state. That's not enough. We're gonna have to keep advocating really hard, but man, it would be a huge relief if we were able to get that over the next um, couple of years. Um, but if we do get those resources, we need to spend them very wisely and very carefully. Um, this is something I spent my career doing, and I hope that that's a skill I can bring to the board as well in terms of asking the right questions, holding the district accountable, and targeting those resources to the places where they need to be targeted. So there is a lot of frustration. There are a lot of things that Portland Public Schools are doing wrong, but I actually think we are at a turning point. We can be a great district if we engage with the community and we're transparent. Um, and we hold ourselves accountable, and you hold us accountable as well. So thank you again for the time today, and I look forward to additional conversations. Last but not least, Ms. Clark. My experience with uh, students every day uh, has called me to come to this work, and uh, as a person uh, who identifies as an educator, uh, and sees on the front lines these issues that are impacting students in my work, um, I have a deep calling to change and, and be a person that I, I didn't get to have when I was in high school. And that, that's why I'm in this work. I think that uh, spending time and investing time in leadership uh, that has that experience to create uh, educational policy for black student success uh, for restorative conduct is something that is desperately needed in PPS and things that I have done and can contribute. Um, I have been supported uh, by, this campaign is a grassroots campaign. I don't have access to wealth. I'm a full-time educator, uh, so we're out here door knocking and uh, engaging communities. Uh, folks from the Reynolds School District, Representative Bynum, Representative Hernandez, uh, folks from the Multnomah Education Service District, PPS teachers, PCC labor orgs, and a number of other groups, uh, Avel Gordy, Charlotte Rutherford, Bob Boyer, um, those folks have supported, in my can or supported my candidacy and uh, that has been uh, very affirming to know that this community and uh, moving with consensus building and community-driven work um, is something that resonates and that's something that I can bring to the school board. Uh, when we have a truly unified vision uh, for um, uplifting all voices, black voices, we are in a position to create the realities that we deserve and that black students deserve. And that's something that I will bring uh, with my uh, potential candidacy. Thank you guys so much. Hey, everybody. My name is Jamie. Um, I'm not a friend of Ailey's. I came to Ailey's campaign because I believe in Ailey. And I'm not going to try and answer questions for her or speak for her. I'm going to tell you why I'm supporting her. I live in Lentz. I got a seven-year-old who's in first grade. I've been involved in politics. I've been involved in this city. I've been serving our community for my entire life. And someone said, this girl's special. She's a, she's a special deal. She did record her voice. She's really sorry she couldn't be here. I think if you guys get a chance, go check out her Facebook afterwards. But she's a pastor. She's a mom. She's a volunteer in our community. She's a, working in our classrooms with kids that aren't hers. <laughs> it's a big thing. To take on a responsibility like this, 
all these folks are taking on a huge yes. challenge to face and insurmountable obstacles that are coming towards us. I'm inspired by Lily's campaign. It's no re re reflection on Mr. Schultz. He's a great person who's also wanted to serve our community. I just picked my vote, which one I'm getting on. I think if you get a chance to check her out, she has a funny spelling name. It doesn't look like the word Ailey. It doesn't. That's the one. Um, I think she's going to be great. I think we're all going to be well served by whatever this election goes. I personally will. Oh my God. Oh. I'll just leave you with saying I personally hope that you'll take the time and really consider who is running this time around and what fits best for what your vision of what the future is. Ailey has been uh, endorsed by PAT, Portland Associate Teachers, Sanford Children, Planned Parenthood. A lot of really great people are putting their name behind her. Barbara Roberts, my boss, Commissioner Fish. A lot of really good people. There are really good people up here. This isn't about who's better or who's worse. This isn't about, this is about what you all think is right for your children and the future of our schools. So thank you all for coming out. Thanks for giving me the chance to talk. And please, if you get a chance, check out Ailey's video. And thank you all. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Can I just say one thing? Excellent spokesman. This, this gentleman is well invested in our communities. And I know I'm not supposed to talk nice about whatever, but excellent spokesman for a great opponent. <laughs> so again, I just want to thank the Black Voices for to the chief source credited that's etiquette yes good news that good news i'm evidence oh, i gave you the truest me my truest speech true and deep from the loosest leaves of my loose leaf my flaws and all see i'm fragile but by grace i am choosing peace over losing sleeping i must say these sandals fit quite nicely over these cool elites nike sacks birkenstocks oh what a faux pas unmasked unabashed unashamed uh, hear the voice set up unacclaimed yeah hear the voice set up unacclaimed maybe that's a taboo maybe it's a fad but maybe just a fact i was used to it